Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Jason Roski, who will be sitting in for Matt Watson today. Jason, what's up? Not much, man. How you doing today? I'm doing really well, man. I'm doing well. And uh, well, first off, welcome to another episode of Startup Hustle, which is brought to you by Fullscale.io. Jason, you are the owner of the KC Auction and Appraisal Company. Is this true? That is correct. Okay. So, well... For those of you out there in a listener land, you can go to caseyauctioncompany.com and be interactive and learn all about it. Now, much to the dismay of most of our listeners, you will not be auctioning me off today. Is that also true? I don't think there's much of a market. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. I guess you do have to have a market in order to, well, you got to have some kind of buyer. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, if you uh, if you want to go ahead and get us started by giving us a little bit of background about what the KC Auction and Appraisal Company does, I think that would be helpful. Sure, absolutely. So we started about 12 years ago here in Kansas City. I noticed a lack of a good quality auction house. We specialize in fine art, antiques, jewelry, and estate items. We basically help people transition, whether that's themselves or their parents, grandparents, family, in-laws, friends, whomever it might be. And we help them decide what to do with all the stuff in the house that the kids may or may not want. Okay. And in a nutshell, that's what we do on a daily basis. And, you know, that's a, the, the estate sale is, is interesting um, because the collection of people's lives have such a subjective value. Absolutely. And, and no matter what somebody's accumulated of life, it is their legacy, right? It's right. What you have in your home is what represents you for good or for bad. <laughs> and uh, we go through and help people decide, should we keep this? Should we sell this? Should we donate it? Is it a garage sale? Is it, you know, a Sotheby's kind of value? So, and in Kansas City, we have the entire range of values and interesting objects. You know, and I, I would imagine that also, um, Bring some some interesting conversations. Absolutely, both good and bad. It's yeah. uh, it, it's a frustrating thing for a lot of people, uh, depending upon how their kids, how they grew, how they were raised by their parents in re- in regards to in relationship to the antiques and collectibles and artwork. If somebody was told all their, their life, "Don't touch it because it's worth a lot of money," well, you subliminally think it has a lot of value, but you could care less about it. And the market changes every day. It's a completely supply and demand driven market. There is no you know, nobody's going to pay you X for anything if they don't need it, right? And so it's all supply and demand. And if a generation of kids don't want to buy anything or keep it, then there's no demand. And so the supply becomes overwhelming. Yeah. And then you also mentioned, you know, so many things that, um, you know, I, I hate to use the term collectibles for things like fine art. Right. But it's true. And, you know, I, um, man, this was something I don't think I've ever talked about this. I was in the fine art business briefly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it kind of on a startup level, I funded an artist and oh, really? yeah, amazing fine art, local painter guy I went to high school with. And, um, I have a pretty significant collection of fine art, but I learned that, I mean, and this is totally cliche, 
things are only worth what someone's willing to pay for it. Right. And with art, that is remarkably subjective. Absolutely. And art, and especially contemporary art. Yeah. Um, there's the secondary market is brutal. Yeah. Because if you like the artist, you know the artist and you buy from them as opposed to any other platform simply because you're supporting that artist as much as enjoying his or her work. Right. And, and the, in this particular example, uh, I mean, we've got, well, you're looking at, at right here in the background and this is just one of many different types of paintings but um you know some people have said said to me along the way they said well in regards to the art you know that, that some of that could be valuable and i say right name three contemporary artists exactly and nobody can nobody can uh, right i could but well yeah. i'm sure you could yeah, but, but i mean for those of you listening try it because yeah, you can't you can, and it's you start to rack your brain and, and you're like uh rembrandt no that's not <laughs> no and we live in an extremely art-centric city yeah right we have one of the best art uh venues uh atmospheres and communities in the country right uh, outside of new york and la i mean kansas city is way up there on the list of you know you've got great artists like you know peregrine honing and rich bowman and 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 all these other people locally that like you said you don't even can't name three nationally your national artists much less three yep. locals and we have first fridays every month that people go to by the thousands so it's really just a matter of personal taste in many regards. And then you have other things too. I would imagine like, um, <laughs> so your, your wedding ring or whatever it is, or jewelry, um, right. let's be realistic. It's not really known for having like a strong resale value. Right. And jewelry is, we sell a lot of jewelry every year. We sell major collections every year. And it's always a conversation with the client, especially if it's the kids. The appraised value is nowhere near what it sells for in a shop, much less in an auction or secondary market setting. And so appraisals are subjective. Values are subjective. The thing with jewelry that is different than other you know, estate items is that there's a commodity value to the gold and silver and the stones, right? Gold is worth what gold is worth. Di True. Diamonds have a value per carat just as they just trade at certain levels. But by and large that's a very nominal part of a larger value on a, on a ring or a necklace or any type of jewelry. And so then it becomes the quality of construction, the design, the style. If it's made by somebody who's important or well-known or a major company, then it'll add value. But a generic ring that you buy at, at most jewelry stores is going to be worth 20 cents on the dollar the second you walk out of the store. So when, you, when you're doing auctions and estate sales, who are the, the buyer is typically who? I mean, who, who, like, who attends these things? So we're all online. So we have attendees all over the country, mm. um, which changed our business drastically. We went online only about six years ago. We started in the West Bottoms before the West Bottoms was a thing. Um, but when we went to online, we found that our buyers have changed. We used to average 60%, maybe 70% of our buyers were wholesale buyers, dealers buying for inventory or for, or for decorators, for our clients. And now we're probably 60, 70% retail buyers, a collector, somebody's going to use the object. And we've definitely noticed a huge increase in the value per lot that we're selling and the interest per lot. We've also noticed that there are certain things that we just don't want to sell online because they're just don't translate well and people won't go out of their way to buy something that has damage. Whereas if you had to stand around and wait all day auction, if you're there, you'll bid on things that you hadn't planned on. With the online, it's much more focused. People are much more looking at the three things out of 300 that they're interested in, as opposed to somebody looking at maybe I'll buy 30 or a bit on 30 or 40 things because I'm standing there. And so it's changed It's changed our world drastically. It's changed the auction industry. Probably the biggest single change in the auction industry ever. So the big difference between what you guys do and, you know, you obviously you have sites like eBay. I mean, technically eBay is an auction. Mm-hmm. 
Um, there's a lot of different types of auctions, but you guys are, are, are offering a more exclusive, more exclusive access, or do you sometimes utilize things like eBay? We don't use, utilize eBay anymore. I used to, I was an original eBay power seller. I've been an online antique sales since day one, essentially. Um, eBay was a better mousetrap and it still is right. right. Before to sell, you had to either rent space in the flea market or an antique shop, have a garage sale, have a shop, travel the country doing antique shows. eBay completely leveled the changing the playing field. It also illustrated immediately. Well, within 18 months of it's really becoming popular, you think had things that went from being super rare to common because the supply just, you realized almost all of a sudden that these things that were always popular were popular because there was enough of them made that people recognized them as what they were. And so it really redefined that whole rare, common, hard to find uh, conversation in our industry such that you know, you just had to become much more intelligent as far as what you were offering for sale. So you have some background. You've as obviously developed some expertise over the years. And I see here in my notes that you have worked with KCPT, so Kansas City Public Television, helping sponsor the fine arts and antique appraisal events. It's like the antiques roadshow of sorts. Am right. we allowed to say that? Uh, of sorts, yeah. Maybe, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. yeah, no, they started, uh, they were the, we, KCPT was the first local public television station to use the roadshow type format as a pledge drive, as a fundraising opportunity right. for the station. And I'll tell you, uh, WGBH did not like it. They were very, very skeptical and concerned about the... What's WGBH? That's, that's the station that uh, owns Antiques Roadshow. I see. And they were very skeptical and concerned, concerned about how that would affect their brand. Um, what's happened is it's helped their brand, but it's been a huge fundraising opportunity for all of public television. But we've been involved with that for approximately 10 years now. It's the first one. It's not an every year thing. Uh, when the real road show came here, obviously they took a couple year hiatus because there's no way to uh, compete with, you know, the Kino brothers and Lark Mason and David Rago. I mean, those guys actually came to town and they did the road show down at the convention center. So we didn't do it for a couple of years around then, but yeah, we've been involved there great things come in people you know, can support the station and find out what their objects are worth from 20 to 25 of regional experts who really know what they're we're talking about and can give them a good idea of what those values were well you've done something right around town because you have won best of casey auction houses in pitch magazine four out of six years but the question i have with that is how many auction houses are there in kansas city so in the six years that that's been a category um there have been well, two other winners, and then I think there's been five others who've been in the finals, right? There's probably, if you really add up all the auctioneers, there's probably 25 or 30 of us. Okay. Um, some could care less. Some of them are great, are way beyond their, you know, they're at the end of their careers. They're not looking at impressing anybody. Uh, others are very small. But there's a lot of auctioneers around the country who don't do it every day, but they're auctioneers nonetheless, uh, who have good presences. And there's some really good, good auctioneers here in the Kansas City area. Well, and I'm not going to ask you to help me auction something off yet. We're going to make people wait for that because I think that's like the, 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 one of the more awesome things. But, um, so when it comes to things like an auction and, you know, we mentioned, so I have a background working in, in dynamic marketplaces and this is where price, you mentioned the pricing can change every single day. Right. Um, you know, one of the things with auctions I would think that would be pretty important is you have to have the right buyers there too. Right. How do you guys get that figured out? Sure. So obviously we have a, a customer database. We've been growing for years and years and years. And we use probably a lot of similar tools to what you do. I mean, 
I don't know if we can say big social media platforms, but they all have algorithms. That, sure. Yeah, I mean, Facebook has lookalike audiences. And yeah. if I put in 500 or 1,000 people who've bought artwork from us before, they'll find a million people like yeah. that around the country. And then you can you can focus that into more niche markets if you if you want to or have the desire or knowledge to do so. And I've spent a lot of the last time, a lot of time over the last couple of years, learning and studying that aspect of it. And we've noticed huge responses because of it in the last from two years ago to now we're going to double our sales in, in just two years. And part of that is the merchandise we're selling. Part of it's the client customers we're reaching to sell it to. Um, but it's directly affiliated and related to the work we're doing with social media and finding buyers who look like and respond to things like our current and previous buyers have. So with that database of, of buyers and people you reach out to, do you have, I would imagine that you have, some specific tags or things built onto people that you know, like, hey, you call me up and you say, hey, Matt, you know, you know, I'm into X, Y, Z, whatever. Yeah. And I buy these things all the time. And that's when you're going to say, hey, you're really going to want to pay attention to this particular auction. This was, I'll give you an example. So my, my family owned um, a dairy. Okay. Here in the in the Midwest, of course, milk and ice cream. Sure, yeah, I know and, all about you guys. Yeah, well, I mean, you've probably I've run seen, into some of the stuff, right? Yeah, the old yeah. signs and stuff. Yeah. Right? Well, it took me a minute to put the two together. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, I've sold the porcelain signs at the course right. ice cream. Well, that was well, that was that, that was my so my great great grandfather um, started that dairy. Um, really? Yeah, here in town. That's cool. And I have a pretty extensive. My dad and I have a pretty big collection of different stuff, but some of it's, uh, super rare. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we haven't been as active, but you know, the internet's kind of changed a lot of this, but you know, before the internet was as prevalent, my dad had some people that would call him. Right. And they'd be like, Hey, you know, there's this thing there's, I don't know, there's a, a flea market down at the American Royal grounds. And I saw this. Yeah. Um, I, that's how I started. Uh, you know, at the governor's building had the, the flea markets once or twice a month. That's when I started buying and selling here in Kansas City. That's, well, I've been married 25 years and it's longer, longer ago than that. But yeah, I'd set up at the flea market and I, I would call um, uh, the guy with the sports bar up in North Kansas City with all the, the sportsmen. I, I called him and I had people call him for me. Hey, Jason's got this really cool XYZ right. and you'd come down and buy it. Now, like I said, the on online marketplaces have just absolutely changed that. Um but it's made for as someone that collects something like that, it's made it, you know, there's certain things that I just don't care about anymore. Cause I've got a bunch of them, like the old milk bottles. Right. But there's, for example, there's like a couple of things that are like Holy grail yeah. <laughs> items that, you know, and then the funny thing is, is in any of these things that they're getting bid on like eBay, it's probably just me and my extended family bidding against each other to a degree. On, yeah. On some levels, but it's also, also about the rarity and different things that we can find. And that's, um, things like eBay and like, you know, that's been decent, but sometimes just like weird Google searches, Yeah, you know, just like digging into like page 13 <laughs> while I was on a, a phone call, I wasn't paying attention to or something. And I found, you know, like I have a sign that I found that was at some, it was at an auction house. It was at a, um, you know, and that's, that's where I would go with this next, but it was sitting there in inventory still because they clearly hadn't sold it any other way. Mm. Now I would think that when you go to these estate sales, so if, if it's my estate being liquidated, God forbid, um, <laughs> and you know, there's 300 items for sale. There's no way you sell all 300 of them, right? Yeah. Absolutely. You, you do or don't? We do. Uh, so that's like any, like even a dollar might win on some of them. Right. So that's, Part of being online, you have to be very selective in that. Um, so yeah, we're all online, and we 
essentially, I'd say 99% of anything we offer and have for the last six years has been offered with no reserve. I see. $5 opening bid, which means that it's going to sell to somebody if anybody thinks it's worth five bucks. Right. Um, and that doesn't, and we've sold things for $5. We've had a few things not sell. We've sold $65,000 Thomas Hart Benton gouache studies for big paintings, and we've sold real estate at the, with the same format and methodology and get the prices you're supposed to. Generally, what happens is the objects and items that you offer in any auction, whether it's a stand around a wait all day auction, like historically is known, or an online platform like we do, the things that have condition issues or have saturated the market will find fewer bidders and buyers. And so those are the things that you have to be careful of uh, overwhelming an auction when you're when we offer them online. So we're very selective. Uh, we kind of say we curate Kansas City for our monthly auctions. And so what's what's something that typically surprises people as to what its actual value is? Which way? Higher or lower? Either, either. <laughs> yeah. um, so oftentimes things that people – so if we're dealing with mom and dad who are in their 70s, and they bought furniture in the when they bought furniture in the sixties or seventies. There are a lot of things that they bought at that time that they just liked, and if they had good taste, they can be worth a lot of money that they don't realize they just bought it. It's just always been around, and so that's always a pleasant conversation. The positive way when people just live with something and don't think it has much value, and you come and tell them, "Oh no, that's a designer who made that." We have a chair in our auction tonight that was in a storage unit, but it's a really great chair by a Mexican designer that we happen to know who it was and, and we should be able to find the buyers for it that they'd have probably sold for 50 bucks or hundred bucks and that'd bring a thousand to $1,500 tonight. Um, the other way are, like you mentioned before, collectibles and things that were sold and baby boomers were very susceptible to this. The marketing put in place by Franklin Mint and other companies back in the sixties and seventies was amazing. They took the technology of the day and just made people believe that whatever they bought was going to continually go up in value. And so people invested in, in in collectibles, not antiques. And now they think of them as being antiques and collectibles and having a lot of value. And the reality is there's a lot of supply. And when you have a lot of supply, no matter how much demand you have, the value is always going to be suppressed. And so that's the negative conversations when you have Franklin Mints or Hummel figurines or pieces like that that were bought in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but they were bought in gift stores. Um, or when grandpa was in, was a GI in World War II and brought back something from Germany or Japan, it is that. It's 70 years old, but it's just a thing. And so it's always about the quality and the condition. And generally speaking, we tell people is if something was expensive new, it's going to be sec- expensive in the secondary estate and antique market. Because people recognize value, always have, always will. And expensive things are always coveted. People today, Supreme, they've got the Supreme gun right there. Um, Louis Vuitton is huge, but it's expensive. And so people will always covet something they can't afford. And when they get to be in their 40s and 50s and the kids are out of school and they're making good money, they're like, I can buy it, but I'd rather buy it at auction at 50 or 60 cents in the dollar. (laughs) As I hold up the Supreme money gun. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned something like that. These are things that are, are created with a level of scarcity in many situations. And they're also hard to get. Right. Like they go on sale, they're uh, they're for sale and they're gone real fast. Um, you know, and then sometimes, uh, sometimes these things sell for a premium and sometimes they don't. Right. And you never know. You never do. And, and, and every company like Target's done some great things as far as that scarcity and mentality with some of the brands that they've had over the years. Um, 
but there's and and they'll peak like when an iPhone comes out, you can always almost always sell it online like the next day for twice what you paid for it at the Apple store if you're the first one in line. And then four months later, you're taking it you're taking it on the chin. Right, and so it's timing is important and crucial. Um, and then if there's a story behind it, that we sold uh, the estate collection of John Douglas Patrick a couple of years ago. He was an artist here in Kansas City area, one of the first artists who went to Paris in the 1880s. Uh, to study, definitely one of the first in the Missouri area, earned us earned an award in the Paris Salon in 1889. But his when he passed, he made he taught at the Art Institute when it was not even called the Art Institute yet. When he passed, his wife kept things, then his granddaughter kept mm-hmm. things, and then his great granddaughter kept things. So we had 500 works from John Douglas Patrick and a painting of his hangs in the Nelson in the South Stairwell. It's called Brutality. It's an amazing, amazing painting. Um, but there was 500 works of his in a basement in uh, Overland Park that we sold for the family. And there were certain things there that brought a lot more than they expected. Um, a lot of things brought less because condition. Um, I'll tell people, this is one of the biggest things we talk about with clients all the time. It's if you don't want it, sell it when you have the opportunity. Because generally speaking, storage does nothing but affect value negatively on an object. Because unless you're paying for premium storage, uh, the most... Uh, environments for storage are not conducive to the correct uh, storage of antiques collectible artwork. So sell it when it's fresh. It might be painful, but if you go back to it five or 10 years from now and it's destroyed, it's really going to be painful. Um, I think it's amazing how non-liquid so many things are. Absolutely. I mean, art's like that. I mean, I own like 40 original paintings and I think about, man, if I had to sell these right now, like that'd be kind of hard. Yeah. Um, on some levels. So you founded your company in 2006 had had that that's correct right yeah so with that he said okay i was like am i, am I right <laughs> um so with that had you had what was your history coming into that what made you want to like go out and do this on your own sure so i bought and sold antiques like i talked about before and i traveled the country doing that uh again ebay was a great great boost our business and basically you know I've been married for 25 years now. We've had our first kid 18 years ago <laughs> and it changes your world. And we were living in DC at the time. Uh, Stacy was pregnant during nine 11. Uh, she was working 14 hours a day or going from the house for 14 hours a day with the hour long commute each way. And we just decided to come back to Kansas city. It's where we met, um, came back here. I was still buying and selling, had a shop over here in Waldo uh, with a little antique store and was looking around. There were some auction houses in the area, that were doing some good things, but nothing like I thought could be done. We were more of a focus on the antiques and collectibles and, and helping people with estates. And we were getting calls almost every day with people with partial estates. And what do we do with it? You know, the kids took X, Y, and Z, and there's A, B, and C left in the house. What do we do with it? And so we found a venue in the West Bottoms uh, before before Urban Mining, I'm sorry, Good Juju opened up, which was the first, first Friday uh, shop down there. We opened up within weeks of each other. And decided, let's give it a shot. We'll start an auction house, see what happens. Our first auction, we had 23 people there. Sold everything, because that's what you do as an auctioneer. You, you know you're going to take it in the shorts for a while. Uh, from there, we've grown to where we're at today, selling you know, sands and paintings and real estate and cars and, and a lot of jewelry to thousands of buyers across the country and the world. And uh, it's been a really fun journey for sure, but we've definitely used technology to help with that along the way. So, and before we get into the technology, how does your financial model work? I mean, I'm assuming that, you know, you get a percentage of whatever is sold and that's the driving force, but can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. And yeah, we're, we're, we're sales commission company, right? We get paid based upon how well we sell things for our clients. 
we don't charge really anything else. There's a moving charge if there's that, but that's all a third party. We don't make any money on that. But yeah, it's we have to look at what do we have buyers for? What are we going to sell it for? And based upon based our labor, advertising, rent, insurance, all those costs have to be paid for out of that commission. And so it looks really glamorous and we love doing what we do, but there's, you know, there's a lot of expenses with this as any other business. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's about finding really good, interesting objects to offer. And when we do that, the, the revenue takes care of itself. So based on the good, interesting objects, as you mentioned, are there, I mean, do you spend, do you turn a lot of people down? Yeah. We probably say no to 99% of the calls we get. Is that just because there, it's just kind of there's a lot general of basic stuff. It doesn't have a whole lot of intrigue to it. Right. There's a lot of reasons for it. That's one of them. Um, you know, space, space becomes a major concern selling objects, right? Even though we're online, there has to be some place where those things are housed. You have to have the space to photograph them, catalog them, have people come pick them up, things like that. And so space is an issue. So yeah, if it's a Do you ship items too, we work with a shipping company. Okay. Um, we're not shippers. I, there's horror stories every day posted on different groups. That's why I asked. Uh, you know, if yeah. you bought porcelain signs, yeah. they've come with you know a sticker on them maybe and, and run right through the mail. Um, so, yeah, we don't ship in-house, but we work with a, a local UPS franchise and do a great job. Uh, but, yeah, we're looking for is there going to be a market for it? The other thing we're saying no to is expectations, right? So if somebody has, you know, these eggs that are great on your table and they think it's worth 50 bucks and the reality is it's worth $2.95, well, I can't satisfy that. And, it's, and that's just an example. It could be a painting that they think is worth a thousand. The reality is worth fifty to a hundred dollars. I can't sell it for them and make them happy in any kind of world. Yeah. So better not even try. Right. I do the same thing with our clients at full scale in some regards. And, you know, we like to think that we pick our clients as much as they pick us, Absolutely. but you know, there's some red flags that I'll run into that, you know, I'm like, okay, there's no way I'm going to make this person happy. Yep. So even if I do the most world-class job that we've ever done, I'm going to lose. Yeah, absolutely. And that is, we can, you, or they're going to be a huge pain in my ass. Yeah. And you know, you've been in business a long time. I have too. And you can just immediately pick up on those things. When mm -hmm. the, you're on the phone call with him and two minutes in, you're like, I'm going to be nice. Listen to them, hear him out. And maybe the story changes. But every time I've doubted, every time I've second guessed myself in that situation, yeah, yeah. it always turns out bad. You talk about the gut, <laughs> right? And trust your gut in some of those regards. I mean, some of the things, you know, just so, you know, not all, not all clients are good clients, not all business is good business. And, you know, you'll typically find, you know, there's that old business school, um, you know, that, that, that Pareto principle also known as the 80, 20 rule where, yeah. you know, 20% of your users, clients or investors or whomever will create 80% of your problems. Yep. And, you know, that's the, the thing is it's, it's best to focus on, um, the important stuff. Right. And that's, we, we changed our business drastically six, six and a half years ago. We were in the West Bottoms. I bought a building down there. Uh, you know, I love the, the startup hustle is great because I've been hustling forever and my yeah. building was a hustle. I found it on Craigslist. There you go. The guy didn't want to pay a r real estate broker to the commission. And so I bought a building off of Craigslist in the West Bottoms and I had uh, people asking me about it the day the paperwork went public. And uh, so that was my biggest hustle. But when I, when we looked at, we had a guy who's really interested in it. We made, he made it, we, you know, worked out a deal and we had about three months to decide where are we going next? And we really took some time to deep dive the books and they, and they said the 80, 20 rule, 80% of our revenue was 20% of our clients. Mm -hmm. How can we just, so you should be catering to, that's who we should be catering yeah. to. And a big space wasn't the way to do this. We got a really small space. It focused us. It gave us the, opportunity to say no much more easily than if we had space because we have space you fill it up and 
it changed our business overnight. And it was a new business because we went from being having auctions every other week in the West Bonds where people were standing around for hours, bidding on it, having a good time, conversating, uh, being in the community to, no, we're not selling everything out of the house anymore. We're going to sell the things that there's a market for and doing it in a very, very defined, refined way. And it's been nothing. There's been hiccups like every business, but it's been the best decision we could ever have made. Have you had to build your own technology to handle this or are there other like third party applications that you just kind of plug into your we, site? We, yeah, we plug into a third party. It's called Highbid um, and they're based out of Florida. There's other platforms out there now that weren't when we did this six years ago. And that's one of the things we're continually looking at. Uh, in the next year, we plan to, to either work, continue with who we're with or find uh, another platform. And we've looked at some, you know, that, getting an app built up for a company and for a bidding platform that people can bid from their phone much easier from anywhere in the world. Uh, a lot of I would imagine you could buy some of that and not have to build it. I mean, right. it's not like the auction's a new principle. And, and I mean, basically the moment the internet came out, things like eBay popped up. Yeah. Yeah. You eBay know, was I mean, a bit of a yeah. trap and it sure. changed, it changed our marketing, changed our world. And yeah, there are definitely people that have made some good strides in that. Like I said, six years ago, there wasn't as much available and it was really Nobody was forward looking and thinking. Now there are several companies. Um, They're probably looking at it like, oh, we, we're not going to be able to compete with eBay. Yeah, for a long time that eBay's was eBay's kind of struggling anymore these days. They're not really like, I mean, do people actually do, do there's, it's, I feel like eBay is like 90% not auctions now. Yeah, I, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's definitely been going that way for a long, long time. It's still a great marketplace, but it's almost like Amazon. Yeah. Um, I don't bid on anything when I go there. Right. I mean, and when I've sold things like, you know, we've used it to like, as we, um, like for example, at the end of 2016, I, I, um, exited my ticket business and we had all kinds of weird equipment and I wasn't trying to put it up for auction. Right. It's just like a buy it now. Yeah. Cause the thing I was finding is people would win the auction and it was like a whole separate pain in the ass to get them to pay. Right. I mean like half of people that were winning the freaking auction weren't even paying. Yeah. And, that's- and it was just like, no, let's not do this. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? And that's one of the, the, you know, or they'd pay like 27 days later and you're like, man, I already resold this. Where have you been? <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? I've just been yeah. right here. Yeah, no, that's, and that's one of the things that's been addressed in most software platforms is that uh, payment. Cause that's one of the biggest uh, tended, or problems with an online platform is I'm not sitting across the table or a counter for my customers anymore. Yeah. Uh, we have customers around the country that 99% of them are awesome. They 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 filled out the work right. They did all the paperwork right. It's a it's a honestly after an auction, it's six or seven link you know clicks, and I've processed 150 invoices with the payments. Yeah, if 99 percent of your customers are all right, you're doing pretty good. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's a lot of vetting yeah. anymore though. I mean, it's right. the the software and the platforms are we're all very diligent about who we let through. Um, just because if you start having negative experiences with an auctioneer somewhere who's on our platform, we can see that. Yeah. And then you're like, no, we're not, it's not worth the headache or the Well, then also headache. you end up with people that have buyer's remorse and stuff like that. Right. I mean, that that's never a good thing. Never a good thing. It's always, yeah. a, and it's always a possibility, but it's less so where systems are set up now. Yeah. Uh, I, it's funny that, uh, you know, whole auction process is, I've always been fascinated with it because, you know, people get, they get caught in that, that heat of the moment. Yeah. It's kind of what you're going for, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, as I mean, just re- being realistic, I mean, as an auctioneer, it's your job to sell it for the most amount possible, right? Yeah. And so you're trying to create an, an, uh, an environment and a, and a mindset that it's a, the scarcity factor. It's FOMO. It's absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's always FOMO. 
Um, and that's why we're looking for things, our customers are looking for things they can't necessarily find every place else. If I can go on eBay and find 30 of them, yeah, there is not, no FOMO. Yeah, there's no, right, right. Um, if I go on eBay and there's one sold three months ago, well, then yeah, there, there's a good chance we're going to have a good bidding war on that piece. What's, so what's the most expensive thing that you've auctioned off? That I've auctioned off outside of real estate. Uh, we sold uh, Thomas Hart Benton gouache. It was a study for a painting that's in a museum um, that was literally folded in half and creased. It was on cardstock, and it brought $65,000. Wow. Uh, we sold jewelry for $25,000 uh, in that range. So those are our two highs. We sold a bunch of paintings this year for fifteen dollars to $35,000. Um, most things that sell at our auction are in the $200 to $1,000 range. Even Sotheby's, you don't think of them. You hear about them selling $100 million paintings. Right. The average price of their painting is under $10,000 at Sotheby's because um, they're selling so much quantity. Their volume is, is staggering. Their overhead is staggering. They have thousands of employees around the country and real estate in the heart of Manhattan. And, and all the other offices are in the middle of those types of Paris and, and London, and they're paying huge dollars to be in those locations. But you know, obviously it works for them. With the what they charge uh, their commission wise, but yeah, it's really a it's a fun and interesting uh, thing to watch. The big boys have celebrate big auctions because they don't they need them every bit as much as we do. And for those of you listening, go to kcauctioncompany.com. You can also find them on Instagram. Just search KC Auction Company. I feel pretty confident you'll come up first there. Probably. Uh, while you're there, if you want to check out, uh, you can go to at Startup Hustle Podcast and look at us on Instagram, see our beautiful faces, or you can head over to the uh, the now mildly new uh, Startup Hustle YouTube channel where you can see our talking heads. Nice. So, all right, I have a note here that says your first hustle was selling rocks door to door. Okay, it tells me two things. Well, it just tells me if that went on for more than like a day, then you you figured out how to be a hell of a salesperson. Because if someone comes to my door selling rocks, yeah, I mean, there's what, what's the angle there? So back, this is obviously a long time ago. My my folks both worked. My brother and I were home in, in the summer, and uh, this is you know. My mom and dad, working class, there was no idea of daycare once we got to like, I got to be like six, seven years old. And yeah, my brother and I took a little red wagon, went across. We grew up in our in our house. When it went in our backyard, there was a cornfield. And across the street the other way, there was houses and an alley and another cornfield. And so we went out and picked up landscaping rocks, mm. threw them in the red wagon and went around door to door. Yeah, I think it was a one afternoon, maybe two afternoon deal. And like, this is hot, hard work and nobody's buying, but we tried it. I had a hustle for years that went on with my red wagon. So my parents grew up and they had a, their house backed up to a golf course. Oh, sure. Golf so, course. and on that, on that, the hole that they lived on, there was a water hazard, big mm -hmm. pond. So people would always wind up and try to smack the shit out of the golf ball and they'd slice it into our yard or into the pond or something like that. So we'd go out and, you know, we, we'd roll up our pants and walk around in the mud. You step on the golf balls, we'd pull them out. We'd find them in our yard. We'd get them about wherever we'd want. We'd shine those things up and we'd load up the wagon. Again, yeah head up to the tea box and you know three for a dollar yeah and then the the the, the marshal would come by and kick us off and that's where the wagon made for a fast getaway <laughs> we'd see we'd see that the, it was you know like a like an 80 year old guy riding that golf cart we'd see him about a hole away and we'd still the retreat would begin and then then we we got smart and we uh there was a crosswalk that went across a public street and he tried to kick us out because my dad was an attorney. He was like, go set up at the crosswalk. The golf course doesn't own that. 
Right. So we got smart. So we really little smart ass kids going, <laughs> yeah, you can't kick us off here. We're on a public street and he couldn't. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, we made a lot of friends doing <laughs> there actually, it's funny because there really were quite a few people that, um, on the weekends would, you know, this was a, a, a course that it was private. So they didn't typically carry cash, but then, and that was always our biggest problem. They would come around they'd say, ah, I left my money in my, in my locker. Right. So, uh, you know, then they, we, we raised public awareness a little bit and, and, and got it to the point where they would start bringing cash with them. So yeah, we'd have, we branched out, we, we, we explored our verticals, started offering lemonade. Nice. Yeah. Do you hear about this kid like up in Minnesota right now? He's, uh, there's no, there's no Krispy Kreme donuts in Minneapolis. And he, or in Minnesota, he was, he's driving down to Iowa on the weekends, buying a hundred boxes of Krispy Kreme and selling them. And Krispy Kreme called him up and said, stop that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how that's going to, that just happened. Like I read it this morning. It's amazing. The Krispy Kreme. So I used to work for a, a Japanese company and, uh, they would send over, um, folks from the Japanese headquarters and they would travel with us. Yeah. And see what, you know, all of the dealer base um, looked like. And they would always want to stop at Krispy Kreme. One guy literally took a whole box of Krispy Kreme donuts home with him. <laughs> Can't imagine that. You're taking like a 25-hour flight. And going home with Krispy Kreme. And just, yeah, to bring a dozen. And by the way, they're not that good after like an hour or so. Microwave them. Yeah, I guess that's true. They, but they, still. They're, they're warm then. I saw a guy do that. Is. That's a huge commitment. And I don't know if I'm ready to, to embrace that. So, look, I would really not be doing a very good job if I got all the way through this episode without a little bit of auctioneer talk. Oh, gosh. I mean, are you equipped for that? I've got my voice here. So, yeah. I, I'm just not sure what we'd auction up. Well, we've got Lego Voltron here. Lego Voltron's really cool. You know, Legos are a really popular thing, and Voltron's always kick ass. Voltron is always kick ass. And by the way, like there's some old Voltron stuff because that when it came out, it wasn't it was like popular, but it wasn't super popular. And right. it was almost back in a time where toys weren't as mass produced as they are. So I've got some old weird Voltron stuff that's like highly collectible, apparently. That absolutely, yeah, and, yeah. and old Star Wars stuff, first gen Star True. Wars. True. You know, I, I destroyed all mine in the sandbox. Right. And none of it. None of it was meant, and and I definitely was. Who was the kid that kept their original Star Wars toys in the box? That was before that was a thing. Right. Right. That's. Yeah. I got issues with that kid for many reasons. <laughs> I'm like, take the toys out of the box and play with them. I would tell that to the people all the time too. Well, most of it was there were some far some people who saw in the future and thought this could be big. Maybe, yeah. And there's a guy here in town who has warehouses full. Or they maybe had a store or something. They didn't, I don't know, they didn't sell them. Some yeah. of that stuff wasn't a hit right away. Either. No, there's, you'll see a lot of times uh, on that first gen Star Wars stuff in the original packaging, the venture price tags mm -hmm. where they've got them marked off oh, for the venture. clearance price, right? <coughs> I haven't thought of venture, yeah. the store venture. Yeah, it's been I mean, gone that's forever. It's been gone forever, man. That's been a blast in the past. You know, one of the things that, um, I'm, um, I don't know if I'm known for, but a lot of people that know me know I have quite the sneaker collection. Okay. And with that, I know some people in the sneaker community and you would be shocked at, there are some types of sneakers that like, I, you know, like my guy, JC Lopez out at urban necessities in Vegas has got just a crazy collection. You're talking about, and it's never about just a shoe that was what they call a GR general release. It was yeah. always, it's always a sample yep. or something they made in this like massively strange quantities that were tiny 
or it was things like an original Air Jordan, which right. we never thought when those came out. And I had a, a like an OG pair of Jordans, and yeah. I remember my mom wearing them later to mow the lawn. Right, right, yeah. And I'm like, shit. Yeah, like, that's those would be like. I mean, even in shitty condition, like the original Air Jordans. Yeah, the black on red. Yes, that shit was gangster. Just work, I'm, but there, but you can't find them. No, no one was like, yeah, I should keep these in the box. So that's the thing when you asked before about values and things like that. When people keep things that weren't meant to be kept or thought to be kept at the time, and that generation is primed for that. Nobody thought about those things yeah. being valuable ever, and the few people who did have made tons of money. Um, I know a guy who would go to venture and jc penny and sears at the at, at christmas after christmas and buy every star wars toy they had yep. left he'd show up with a 24 foot truck u-haul and buy it all yeah because they're like 60 percent <clears throat> off or something right. weird like that and yeah. he stored it he's been one of the biggest star wars dealers in the country there's, there's a lot of stuff on the flip of that though too that people buy up that like definitely dried up and well yeah. you know when i was a kid i collected baseball cards and a lot mm-hmm. of baseball cards um, you know, were set to have a supposedly have a specific value around them. But later when looking back, you know, especially stuff in the eighties, they were just so mass produced. Yeah. There was no scarcity to them at all. 80, like, 81 was the big change year for that. That's when just, Fleer and Don Russ came into the market. Just and, making huge amounts of baseball cards and yeah. just like disgusting levels. And like, and one of I watched a documentary on this cause I'm, I'm fascinated with stuff like this. I think it's so fun, but, um, like the Ken Griffey jr. Rookie card was one. And there was, rumors that upper deck was just making them right. like in sheets of sure. just that and I'm they sure. were like really expensive but they're you know like they had made so many of them that like it was like their currency <laughs> yeah i remember don mattingly rookie card yeah. at one point was three four five hundred dollars yeah, i think I now you can i think now you can 10 bucks yeah it's probably it's crazy yeah. um because those were made with the collectible market in mind um it's the things that were made before that and they weren't that were made without the collectible market in mind that has driven value forward. So I own something cool that no one that's what I, I, I specialize in one of a kind things. If I'm going to collect anything, I don't buy any collectible at all, but if I do, I want it, I want it to be the only one. Right. So in 2015, the Royals won the world series. Yep. And with that game six of the American league championship series was here. Yep. And we played the blue Jays. Right. And with that, Eric Hosmer hit a ball down the line that scored Lorenzo Cain from first base, which was theoretically the run that put the Royals into the World Series in which they won. Right. I own the jersey that Hosmer was wearing when when he did that. And on top of that, can prove it because it's certified by Major League Baseball. Right. All the way down, it's got a little, it's got a little serial number on it. All this different stuff, like, and and to me as a Royals fan, like, I don't know if I'll ever sell that. It is definitely one of a kind, right? Um, but I bought it directly from the Royals. Yeah. Right after that happened, 2015, when they won the series, Joel Nichols had me on Casey Live talking about that very thing. He asked me what's going to be valuable in regards to the 2014, 2015 Royals going forward. And I said, the things that people are buying as collectibles will never have long-term major value. It's the things like if you get LCD Escobar, LCD Escobar, first pitch inside the park home run ball. That, that, yes. It's always, it's an iconic thing in Kansas city. It will always have probably as much value as anything else associated with either of those teams. The Hosmer Jersey be cool as hell too. And that's the thing is most people don't think about that because it wasn't like a walk off, but, but, and you know, it's got like a dirt stain down the front of it and stuff like that. So here's the funny thing is the Royals. I bought that in an online auction Mm -hmm. from the Royals, but I was shocked that they were even selling it. Right. Because, you know, when I think about it, like that was without a doubt the hit 
that put the Royals into the World Series. Like to and and you know, like does anyone give a shit about that? I do. Right. I think it's super cool, man. I love it. Yeah. I think and, it's awesome. And I and, bought some other stuff too, but that particular that particular one, um, and here's the thing too, and most people don't know this, but they wore they so for the ALDS and for the division series and the championship series, they will only had one home jersey. Okay. So they would only like the whites or the grays. And the whites, that was it. They wore the same jersey. There weren't they didn't wear a different one every single game. Okay. So there's not even another Eric Hosmer jersey really that was the home version of it. So that went for the division series and the championship series. And then sometimes you get punched in the mouth too, because I bought the Alex Gordon version of that. Mm-hmm. And he didn't do so well after that. Right. He had some struggling years. And I don't think that that would probably draw a premium. It doesn't have that significant value. But I love – I'm a big Alex Gordon fan because for those of you who don't know, it's one of the Royals outfielders and a guy who will very much run full speed into a wall for his team. Absolutely. And that's why I like it. Right. And, uh, you know, I think – And, lot- yes, I've worn both jerseys. Hell, yeah, you should. <laughs> um, those are things that I think we're almost too close to both of them at this point. Um, but as we go forward, obviously both those guys will be in the Royals Hall of Fame. Yep. Gordo, if he had any kind of a bat, any kind of a stick, he'd be in MLB Hall of Fame. Maybe, yeah. Except he's probably he's probably a little short of that. Seventh right. Gold Glove just yeah. yesterday, which yeah. is which is a, you know that's an amazing. I don't know if Hosmer will be in the Royals World in the Royals Hall of Fame. I'm not sure. Well, maybe. I think almost all the guys on that yeah. team, um, especially when you're a Royals fan and they don't win every year, right? There's just there's you know five years before five years after who who are you going to put in there? It's got to be Kane. It's got to be yeah. Haas. It's got to be Moose, um, Davis, and Herrera and. Uh, I, I have some other stuff too. I have a whole collection of of locker tags. Oh yeah, from 2014. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, like the <clears throat> the literally the tags that were above their lockers, and I bought a whole bunch of those and. I frame those up and do a pretty cool display. Very cool. Yeah. So, yeah. So keep pass out. It's like, I mean, I bet I didn't buy any of that stuff going, man, I just think this is going to appreciate. But, right. but here's the thing like that Hosmer jersey. I mean, there's probably a number of places I could hang that up. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it might be like a sports bar. Or right. Like, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's cool to someone. Someone would look at that and be like, hey, that's pretty neat. Right. Yeah. Cause it, I'm sure if you're on Facebook at all right now, you're seeing all the five years ago, four years ago posts of the Royals winning different games. Oh, and, man. It's so painful. And it's painful and joyous at the same time. It is, but I want to <laughs> win all the time. So with that, we have to get back to auctioning oh, Lego Voltron. Lego so, Voltron. I mean, how does this go? So I think the people that are listening want to know, like, I think all of us have tried to auction something off before so like what's the like 30 second or less crash course to actually being an auctioneer how do we do this right so we do talk a little bit faster but it's really that you talk without punctuation in your conversation right so when you and i are talking we have pauses that are built into the conversation your tones change and everything else when you're auctioning something you never change your voice you don't change the stop you don't stop for anything you just keep on going with the numbers that you're going regardless of where you're at in the conversation so and that's what makes it feel fast. It's what makes it feel fast. And depending upon which auction house and which type of auction you're at, the speaking will be faster or slower. But that's really a personal decision on the auctioneer. So if you go to Sotheby's or Christie's in New York City, it's I have $1,000 here, $1,500, $2,500, $3,000. Oh, $4,000. Thank you, ma'am. Five Is that like the highbrow, like overly like classy way to do the auction? It, 
Yes, and it's also the easiest way to say big numbers, right? Okay. And it's also very clear. There's no there's no mistaking the number that you're on or you're asking for. And in those places, they've got the paddles too. They're like, no, that's another thing too. Is like in some auctions, like a wink or a yeah. nod or something like that might be the cue. But and even in that kind of environment, um, the bidders who are there regularly usually do not use the paddle. Right. Um, once they've won, they'll raise their paddle because that's where their bidder number's at and that's how they keep track of. But yeah, it's usually a little nod or a, a finger wave or something along those lines. And as the auctioneer, you get to read your, you need to read your audience and know that. And the longer you do it and the longer you do it with a similar or same audience, the easier it becomes. And are you ever wrong? Never. <laughs> of course i mean it's human i'd have a hard time with that you know because yeah, some guy's like scratching his ass and you're like yeah and he's like wait a minute well i did an auction a couple weeks ago and the guy was actually pointing at a guy across the way and i had to stop and said sir if you don't quit pointing at him you're gonna start bidding yeah no doubt because <laughs> it was a true gesture yeah. but he wasn't thinking about it so you get to you can read um where their folk, where their attention is focused at, right? If they're looking at me, then that's a bid. If they're looking across the way, I might see the action, <laughs> but they're not. And I look at them like he's not paying attention to me, and so I'll, I'll clarify. Uh, and auctioneers who have done this more than a couple of times do that because you just—it's funny, right? But it's not funny. Um, it's funny when you count when you do it on purpose to somebody, but it's not funny if you just absolutely made a mistake. Then you got to go back and you've got to go back to zero because they're like, well, who was I bidding against? Um, and it, it interrupts the flow of the auction. And in a live auction, a stand around auction, you're the, the focus is only finite, right? You can only stand there and pay attention at an auction for so long before you're like the hell with it, or you've run out of money or you're just tired. And so you have to try and keep things going really quickly. The online platform changes that overnight because if you're yeah, and I think that I want to hear the like actual auction part, not just click a higher bid. So that's right. where the in-person stuff's a little more fun and exciting. All right, so let's back up here. So right. we're removing punctuation, we're removing pauses. Yep, and then it's really a matter of just counting. So we did the slow one for like uh, Christian uh In Kansas City, we have a huge benefit world, uh, nonprofit organizations that do a lot of benefit auctions. And so it'll be a little faster than the Christie's, but it'll be slower than a personal property auction. So it'll be like, all right, we're selling this trip to Bermuda. Who started $1,000? I got 1000 now, 1200 now, 1400 now, $1,600, $2,000, $2,500, $3,000, sold $3,000. See, easy. that didn't feel unreasonable. Right. And so, again, you're judging your audience at a benefit auction, a benefit event those people aren't as auction savvy as an auction right. attendee. So let's type Voltron. Let's say I'm selling a toy auction and it's a room full of people who go to auctions all the time. I can get really quick and fast. Let's say, all right, we're selling Voltron figure right now. I've got a hundred dollars, hundred quarter, hundred half, one seventy five, two hundred, two and a quarter, two and a half, two seventy five, three hundred, three and a half. Thank you, sir. Four hundred, four and a quarter, four and a quarter, four and a quarter, and we have four and a quarter sold at $400, bidder number 22. Now what you'll notice is that the time those things took was very similar. If you go back on the tape and, and say, look at the time I spent selling each one, it was very similar. And the values increasing was very similar, but how I spoke was different based upon the audience. And there's expectations in each audience. If you go to a cattle auction, those guys talk so fast and they're talking in quarter cent increments on the pound. Um, but they're talking because those guys, that's and mainly guys at a cattle auction, that's what they're used to. And that's what they've been attuned to forever. And so it really, you have to pay attention to your audience and your market, no matter where you're selling and how you're selling and, and gear your, your chant to the audience. So if you're out there listening and you want to place a bid on Lego Voltron, <laughs> maybe we'll, that'd be tough. We actually have two of those 
Um, Watson's kids built that. I mean, yeah. I'm telling you what, Lego Voltron took some time. I bet he did. Yeah, but they hit Watson's kids did that in like four or five hours, which by the way blows my mind because I've had we so we had I have a set and Watson had a set. His kids put that together in like half a day. I am like a third of the way through the blue lion. <laughs> Yeah, I could see that. And I gave up and it's just like sitting there somewhere and I'll probably like have it. Yeah, but I, you know, I opened enough of the package that it's not like a mint condition thing anymore. So I probably just screwed my, my future auction value in like 40 yeah. years. Yeah. Your investment went to hell. Man, I don't know what I'm going to do. So, <laughs> for those of you listening, if you want to check out what Jason does at KC Auction and Appraisal Company, you can go to the KC, go to kcauctioncompany.com. Um, with that, we like to end each and every Startup Hustle episode with what we call our Founders Freestyle, which is your time to say about whatever you want, man. It can be advice to people that might want to follow in your footsteps. It could be a pitch for your company. You can do about whatever you want. It's freestyle. All right. So, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's been a great time. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Um, yeah, so basically, you know, we, we love helping people transition through their those challenging life stages in our company. And if you're thinking about going into this industry, there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of potential, a lot of ways to do it that we don't do it that are better than or worse than or different than ours. And there's tons of opportunity if you're thinking about getting a hustle side of side hustle for you. This this market and industry is a great place to look at the secondary antique estate markets. There's things that sell for huge money on Craigslist, Facebook. Instagram that have no value in an estate sale. Um, for people looking for our services, give us a call anytime you want to. Send us a message on Facebook, Instagram, email. We're always talking to people around the country about how to best process that that situation of my grandma collected sterling silver, my grand, grandfather collected jewelry, they collected X, Y, and Z. We have a house full of it. What do we do? There's a lot of easy, you know, not there's a lot of easy first steps. But we can help you get through those and then decide how to go forward with that and or recommend you to people around the country that we work with on a regular basis. Well, I appreciate you coming in. You're part of our ongoing series where we're branching out and we're trying, you know, you mentioned uh, um, hustling rocks door to door. <laughs> I mean, look, it's all hustle, man. There's a, there, We're all entrepreneurs. We all do things a little different way. I felt like that, you know, there's a lot of things too is, is um, and I'll kind of do my freestyle is you never know when the remnants of your past are the, uh, are the funding vehicle for what you want to do next. Right. Like so many people are, are talking about, Oh, I don't have the money to do this. I don't have the money to do that. You might. Right. Might dig some shit out of the closet and see what's up. People, as as people in general, we just keep way too much stuff. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's very well could be a whole bunch of stuff that you, you just got to take the initiative to, it might not be a, a good fit for the Casey auction company, but there's a whole lot of different stuff that you can probably round up. And, you know, even if you're, um, you know, there's this, uh, the right time never comes. You know, people often use that as an excuse. They're like, well, it's not the right time for me to start my startup or me to start a business. Yeah, that's not coming. There, there, that's just an excuse. Yeah. Uh, but you can create the right time, but maybe rounding up a few things that are out there. I, I mentioned earlier when, you know, we left, uh, um, when I exited my the ticket business in 2016, we basically, we not basically, we liquidated all the equipment that went with that. I think we got like, I don't know, like a lot. <laughs> I can't remember what the exact number was, but I mean, it was a, it was a significant amount of cash for stuff that was just sitting there completely useless to me at that right, point. Right. And it just required a little effort and coordination to put it together. And, you know, there were some things that we sold 
that had some value, largely related to technology and electronics and mm-hmm. things like that. And there's some stuff we either threw away or gave away. Right. But the fact of the matter was I wasn't dragging it around with me from place to place and, and different stuff. And then some of the stuff out of that business as well, we repurposed into things like the, the computer that we are recording this podcast into right now originally came from a ticket company. So just talking about repurposing the things in and around your life. And then also if you're bootstrapping, go buy some stuff at auction. Absolutely. I mean, you don't have to go buy brand new stuff to start a business. Oh God, if you're looking to set up an office, office furniture at auction is dirt cheap. Oh man. I mean, and I see that all the time online. People, I mean, sometimes people are just like, Hey, if you can be here in the next three hours, you can have like 50 office chairs. But here's the thing is that, I mean, that's like five grand. Oh, yeah. If you're going to go buy a new or more. Yeah, go buy a file yeah. cabinet. They're hundreds of dollars. You can get them on for Craigslist literally uh, for, for free. free. For almost free. Almost every day. Yeah. yeah. You know, I worked in the piano business for a long time. That's another something you can get for free if you haul it off. Pianos. And by the way, people used to call us all the time and say, what's this worth? And you have that. You're like, it's not worth <laughs> shit. I'm like, what do you mean? This is like an antique. I'm like, right. yeah. And it probably won't stay in tune. It weighs too much. And it sounds like crap. Yeah. And they're huge. And they're huge. I can buy yeah. a keyboard. And then sometimes they were worth a lot. It just yeah. depends on what they were. But if it didn't say like Steinway or Baldwin or something like that on, t- on, on the front of it, well, And it's so got to be in really great condition. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. that black ebony finish on a grand piano, that gets no good. blemished, it's three grandies. I mean, yeah. in a heartbeat to get that redone. By the way, on the flip side, though, certain musical instruments uh, do truly get better with age. The Absolutely. soundboards, uh, um, as they continue to dry out, and you think, isn't, isn't that wooden piece already dry? Nope. No. Um, like, you know, guitar, t- uh, acoustic guitars typically start to sound their best after five years. Right. And that's just like, it takes a while, but there is some stuff that you can find in and out there. So, well, anyway, so as we say, here I am trying to auction off and I'm not really good at this. I'm going to say Lego Voltron and Jason Roski and go to the KC auction company and appraisal company.com. <laughs> well done. <laughs> See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCarsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.